Hola, buenos dias, and welcome to our second episode of ESMO Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the Chronicles of Madrid. I'm Michael, that's Josh, and today we are releasing our second episode on all of the latest and greatest, or as we called it uh, last time, the creme de la creme, which is a great phrase, I think we'll use it more, of studies being presented at the ESMO Congress 2023 in Madrid, not Real Madrid, as Josh probably thinks. Josh, how are you doing today <laughs> after our <laughs> footballing misadventures yesterday? Um, I think I'm doing fine. I feel that I am now the crux of all the jokes, which seems appropriate. But yeah, I'm doing really well, Michael. How are you? I'm good. And what Josh is saying there, for those who are listening, is that absolutely nothing has changed. Why don't <laughs> Why don't we get cracking straight away because we have a lot to cover. Today we are focusing on metastatic breast cancer and we have four studies. We won't leave you hanging. We will save the best for first. And Josh, why don't you talk about Destiny Breast 04, one of the long line of many successful and exciting trastuzumab deruxtecan studies. It was my destiny to present this. So the overview of this study, it was... (laughs) Yeah, terrible. It was TDXD or trastuzumab deruxtecan versus treatment of physician choice, which we will abbreviate as TPC in patients with HER2 low, unresectable, or metastatic breast cancer. This is an updated survival results of the randomized phase three Destiny Breast 04. Let's briefly summarize that background. So 60% of metastatic breast cancers have been categorized as HER2 negative, but in fact, have low levels of HER2 designated as HER2 low, which is on immunohistochemistry 1 to 2 and ish negative. So TDXD is an antibody drug conjugate, which I love and so does Michael, and it's directed towards that HER2 receptor. And it targets these receptors and it works by having a payload, which is chemotherapy, which essentially deposits into the cancer cell, has a bystander effect, and should theoretically kill that individual cancer cell and the cancer cells around it. Previously, the Destiny Breast 04 demonstrated superior progression-free survival and overall survival in patients with HER2-low metastatic breast cancer treated with a TDXD versus TPC at the primary analysis. What was the reason for that um, particular use of voice there, Josh? You sounded like Megatron. Thank you. Well, the reason is, is that sometimes primary analysis and updater analysis don't actually, aren't the same. But I mean, embedded primary endpoints, but even so, it's always good to know with longer follow-up so we can give give our patients better reassurance and reliability with the treatments that we give them. This trial established HER2-low metastatic breast cancer as a new targetable patient population, with TDXD becoming the new standard of care. Woof, that is some very strong words from the people of TDXD. The median, the primary, the median follow-up was 18.5 months, and this is an updated follow-up. So it was an international open-label multi-center trial Patients had to have received one to two prior lines of chemotherapy in that metastatic setting, and hormone receptor positive must have had at least one line of endocrine therapy. They were randomized two to one to be receive either TDXD or TPC, with the chemotherapy used being capecitabine, aribulin, gemcitabine, paclitaxel, or abraxane. The primary endpoint was PFS, which has been completed, and the secondary endpoints was overall survival in the 
hormone receptor positive and the all comers group, which is an important thing to note. And the secondary endpoints, there were lots of them, but the PFS by investigator and the safety profile. So the methods was that there were 713 patients screened, 557 randomized. It's a classic breast cancer trial. There are lots of patients in this. So at the time of final analysis, 95% of patients had discontinued the study drug of the 373 patients on TDXD, of which 69 had withdrawn due to progressive disease and 16 due to adverse events. Of those on the TPC or treatment physician choice, 100% had discontinued at the time of follow-up. And I believe the average follow-up time for this updated analysis was about 30 months, Michael. So let's go into those juicy, juicy, juicy results. I'm speeding through this because it's important. Um, the, the, the updated efficacy results, so the median overall survival for the primary analysis was 23.9 months in the TDXD cohort versus 17.5 months. And the updated analysis was essentially unchanged with a hazard ratio of 0.69 the all patients, which included that triple negative breast cancer cohort, showed the updated analysis with a median overall survival of 22.9 months and 16.8 months with a hazard ratio of 0.69. Slightly worse than the primary analysis, but not far off. When we look at the progression-free survival for the primary analysis, median progression-free survival was 9.6 versus 4.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.37 not bad, Michael, for a third-line therapy. And the updated analysis of medium progression-free survival was exactly the same. <laughs> Moving on to the all patients. Did you like that physician pause? The all patients showed an updated analysis of 8.8 .8 months versus 4.2 months with a hazard ratio of 0.36, which included that triple negative breast cancer cohort. So an interesting side remark by the presenter was that at the two-year analysis, all TPC patients had discontinued the drug. So that was at the 24 months mark. And 15% of patients were still on TDXD, showing that it, it works better than the, stand, than the prior standard of care. When we look at an exploratory analysis and whole type, they're small numbers, but it's the triple negative space. They found the median overall survival and the primary analysis was 18.2 versus 8.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.48. Mind you, only 18 patients. And the updated analysis was slightly worse with a overall survival of 17.1 months in the TDXD with a hazard ratio of 0.58. Still 40% better than the standard of care for that triple negative cohort. So definitely something to consider in your patients who have low HER2 expression but have no estrogen and no progesterone receptors. Moving on to the PFS in this cohort, the, this was 8.5 versus 2.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.46 at that primary analysis. And the median PFS updated was 6.3 versus 2.9. Interesting, Michael, the hazard ratio dropped to 0.29. So it was considered more efficacious at the updated analysis than the primary analysis, right? And this is the you know, that small number of the exploratory analysis. And I wonder whether it was actually a typo. I mean, it's tiny numbers, so who knows? But I definitely looked at this report. I'm like, this, I, I don't know if I'm reading it wrong, but it seems a little bit odd. 
the the long and the short of it though is that TDXD seems to work in a group of patients where the options are fairly limited though is that fair to say that is and some other I, I don't I don't want to take up all of it because we've got limited time but the post hoc anti cancer treatment so the PFS two was at least fifteen point five months for TDXD versus ten point five months in the treatment of physicians choice in the hormone receptor positive overall safety was relatively similar things to look out for include nausea fatigue transaminase elevation, alopecia and vomiting, and of course, pneumonitis. About 10% got pneumonitis, so something to keep an eye on. And I'm pretty sure at the moment, if you have anything beyond a grade one, you have to discontinue. There's a pretty significant protocol for TDXD in regards to making sure their pneumonitis does not worsen. So the 32-month medium follow-up of Destiny Breast 04 confirms that this is a new standard of care for her too low. And I think they're pushing that to a cent now. I think a cent might be the second one, which is moving it up to not first line or moving it up a line. So it might be first line in a metastatic setting. Very exciting times ahead. It brings us hope, which also brings us to our second article, Michael, which is the Salty 1903 Hope Trial. Show us all that hope. I swear you just sit at home and wonder how you're going to do all of these segues because they're really good. It's dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> they're just spontaneous. It, it's your greatest talent. Uh, so the hope, the hope trial is an interesting trial because it's not testing a um, uh, an intervention. It's actually a study that is focusing on the feasibility and benefit of a um, molecular screening program for patients with advanced breast cancer. The background to this is that next-generation sequencing, or NGS, allows us to personalise therapies, that is, uh, tail as old as the last 10 years or tail as old as the first TKIs in oncology, Uh, but logistical and financial challenges remain. Anyone who's had a next-generation sequencing or ordered a next-generation sequencing will know that sometimes you have to be a little bit creative, find, for want of a better word, access programs or pay for them yourselves in order to get this information. The HOPE study aimed to evaluate the feasibility of implementing a molecular screening program for patients with um, advanced breast cancer, gain a comprehensive understanding of the molecular landscape of advanced breast cancer. This was a Spanish study, so obviously all the patients are in Spain, and to facilitate patient access to targeted therapies. It's interesting, and we will include a link to the presentation because the HOPE study design is a little bit complex, but Basically, what they had is they enrolled patients who were known to have metastatic breast cancer in Spain. Through a partner local laboratory, their cancer was investigated from a histopathological perspective. So they would take the previous samples and ship them to a central lab for quality testing and then DNA analysis from the uh, Foundation 1 CDX next generation sequencing assay, which is the assay they used. Some patients also had uh, liquid biopsies with ctDNA analysis. So this information was put together, a molecular report was produced and reviewed at a molecular advisory board. And basically what they're looking at is whether all of this work actually changes the outcomes of patients. Any oncologist who's worked for any period of time will tell you you see these mutations 
if you know a bit of genetics, you know that they could potentially be implicated in carcinogenesis, and then you struggle to actually find a treatment or an appropriate treatment for them. In terms of the characteristics, the demographics were relatively even across both arms. That is the histopathological analysis as well as the liquid biopsy analysis. The majority were hormone receptor positive HER2 negative at 77%. There was a relatively even separation of patients that were greater than 50 years old at 53.6% or less than 50 years old. And in total, they managed to get 604 patients. 428 of these patients had tumor sample analyses, 386 had liquid biopsies, and 256 patients had both. So there's, while the numbers appear sort of large, there was significant crossover between the two groups. Now, this is one thing that I think will be interesting to look at because there is a significant degree of drop-off through the various stages of the study. So prior to the even getting the information, so sourcing the sample or getting the liquid biopsy, 57 patients of the original 604 were not analysed due to either death or withdrawal of consent. After patients in both groups had a sequence sample, 94 patients in the histopath group uh, failed analysis due to various quality control factors. So you have 356 patients in total having a molecular analysis board analysis. Prior to the results of this analysis, 44 patients died before the results. So you can see that there's actually a lot of uh, drop-off and because this process still takes some time. In terms of the results, these are very early phases, but 72.8% of patients had a mutation that was deemed to be a SCAT, which is the ESMO scale of clinical actionability of molecular targets, mutation of class 1 to 3. Now, just so that you know, an SCAT class 1 mutation is ready for routine use, so there's something commercially available that you can just reach for straight away. Tier 2 is investigational, so there might be some studies that are actively investigating the efficacy of this potential mutation. And SCAT tier 3 is a hypothetical target. So something that, as we said in our CNS episode from yesterday, seems like it should work, but may not necessarily. Of these 72% of patients that a new mutation was found, 19% were already known, and the majority had already been treated. So you've got a significant proportion of patients that we are turning up new mutations. Now, what mutations were turned up? Well, in the tissue DNA sequencing, the most common mutation was actually a PIK3 kinase mutation, uh, which is uh, fairly common in breast cancer, as these results show, but is a mutation that we've actually struggled to treat or take advantage of. Other common mutations were that of P53, ERBB2, CDH1, and various other mutations, including several varieties of homologous repair deficiency. The proportion of mutations was similar in the two groups. That's the histopath group, the tissue sequencing, and the uh, liquid biopsies. So in conclusion, the authors concluded that implementing a nationwide screening program is both practical and feasible. Josh, I was racking my brains when we were preparing for this, but I don't think there is a similar program in Australia that's government or Medicare funded. I think some of the BRCA screening programs might be uh, approaching that. 
and there's certainly ways to get access to it. But I don't think there's a central screening program that we have in Australia. Are you aware of any? Look, there isn't a free central program. Certain hospitals through different programs, like the most program through the Garvin, do do an abbreviated version of foundation testing. Um, And there's also Garden, which is another company. So I've had a number of patients who have self-funded foundation, which costs about 3000 USD, which in Australia is a whopping four to 50,000. No, it's about, it's about four, $4,000 with the exchange rate. So a lot of money, potentially limited options to utilize the mutations that you find. Yeah. And a lot of our patients will be familiar with the risk stratification program Oncotype DX. Uh, So a similar sort of thing here. Um, In Victoria, in Australia, we recently had a study called Precision that enabled patients to get um, access to next-generation sequencing, but unfortunately that's closed. So these sorts of uh, backdoor access programs, they do stop or they do wrap up, I guess. So next-generation sequencing did allow for personalised treatment and discovery of new molecular targets. Access to medications remains an issue because... A lot of these mutations are investigational. You have to be able to get on a trial or you pay through the nose, which is very rarely a financially feasible option. Now, as I said, these are early results. The majority of the patients enrolled, 136 in total, remain in follow-up. So they're still looking at the tumor molecular boards and trying to see if that actually changes treatment. So this is a study to keep an eye on one to put on your radar, as it were, but interesting early results, Josh. Very interesting, but I do believe that the future of medicine and oncology is heading towards this. This will be the standard of care. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's one thing to have the assays freely available, but the biggest challenge, of course, is to have, you know, the, the something on the other end no matter what you find, that there is a a treatment that will treat your cancer. The next study that we wanted to talk about is a a final update from the TULIP trial of trastuzumab duocarmazine, which is something that I think a lot of people were looking forward to in the anti-HER2 space, but not to spoil things, but stumbled towards the end, wouldn't you say? Potentially, we don't know if it flourished, but hold tight as I give you these results. So this was the... See, you're just better at this than me. I am. I'm a dad. That's that's the joys of being a dad. I'm a dad man. Okay, so the trial, the Trillip trial, to give you a very brief overview, it was trastuzumab duocarmazine. It's an ADC, similar to trastuzumab emtanzine, trastuzumab deruxtecan, trastuzumab whichever. Uh, versus physician choice therapy in pre-treated HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. This is the final result. So they stratified 2 to 1 to have T-DUO, which is the abbreviation, or TPC, so treatment of physician's choice, uh, and they were continuing these treatments until unacceptable toxicity or progression, classic primary endpoint of PFS, and secondary endpoint of all the other things you want to know like overall survival and safety they were supposed to have two prior therapies in the metastatic setting or they could have had tdm1 uh, for metastatic disease so that was interesting so 437 patients were randomized the median number of previous treatments was four so you had to have at least two um, so that's pretty late in the line of treatments Verse five in the physician choice 
most common prior treatments was trastuzumab um, along with TDM1 and bertuzumab as well. And what they found was this. The median overall survival was 21 versus 19.5 months with a hazard ratio of 0.87 that was not statistically significant. There were adverse events including conjunctivitis, keratitis, and others like the classic fatigue, nausea, and alopecia that we all have known to, known to grow and love. Um, we haven't really loved these toxicities. But in conclusion, unfortunately, this ADC did not reach the final hurdle, did not go for gold, and it was no better than the standard of care treatment. There was a trend towards benefit, but nothing statistically significant. And it might be used as a later line therapy, but we have other better therapies already or equivalent therapies. And it looks like they've suspended the uh, access program at the moment in the US. I don't know if it was an access program or they were kind of funneling towards getting it approved. So it's a sad day for the HER2 world, but potentially we will have another one coming up soon. And speaking of before you, wait, wait, I got this, but speaking before you, no, nah, I haven't got it, but Michael, do you want to talk to us about the begonia <laughs> trial? You know, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, it's like a flourishing forest, our podcast. It's so beautiful with lots of plants and trees. And I don't know, just stop me talking. Well, I was going to say that hopefully the results of the begonia trial will help cancer be gone. Uh, right from the start you finally got it (laughs) yes i got it just one thing before i launch into begonia and then josh and i uh also gone the uh with the tula trial i think the one thing to say is that yes the um trastuzumab duocarbazine it's it's not better than physician's choice but you theoretically could still use it as a later line of therapy I don't know if this is something that the drug company will pull the plug on because it's unlikely to be used very frequently, but it is something that could potentially be used as a much later line of therapy, but it lacks the sparkle of a TDXD or a TDM1. You also have to think about the cost of the drug, right? So if you've got a classic chemotherapy that costs 150 bucks, and then you've got this drug which costs 8000 or whatever it's going to cost. And is so, going to be no better. Yeah just a hmm. financial game but that's another another ethical discussion yeah it'll all depend on access and whether there is any or whether this is just something that the drug companies abandon time will tell but you might notice if you're paying attention that this episode has a bit of a theme and that theme is adcs because we have another one here this is datapotamab deruxtecan or datodxd and this ADC will make another uh, appearance on this series because it was part of a plenary presentation for uh, advanced triple negative breast cancer. That is not this study. That will be coming in a later best of the best or creme de la creme of ESMO episode. Ooh, exciting. Yes, thank you for that uh, sound effect, Josh. However, this particular study, Begonia, is a phase 1b slash 2 study of datapotamab deruxtecan with devalimab as the first-line treatment for unresectable locally advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Now, this study, again, it's quite a complex study design in that it is of a similar ilk to your studies like Stampede in the prostate cancer space, where you have a drug, an intervention, but 
there are lots of permutations and combinations with how it's used. And so even though you have lots of effectively sub-studies going on, they all fall under the one umbrella, in this case, of begonia. The sub-study that was presented at ESMO was ARM7, specifically DATO-DXD plus Devalimab, but they had multiple ARMs in this study, specifically patients receiving paclitaxel and Devalimab, capivacitib plus paclitaxel plus Devalimab. So there's lots of ARMs to this study, but we will focus on ARM7, which is DATO-DXD plus Devalimab. So eligibility criteria, this study only included female patients aged greater than 18 years. Patients had to have unresectable uh, locally advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer that was untreated. It had to be greater than 12 months since prior taxane therapy in the early stage. So just to clarify, patients could get treatment in early stage disease, but uh, could not have any treatment in the metastatic setting. ECOG performance status had to be 0 to 1. They had to have adequate organ function, measurable disease, no prior treatment with a checkpoint inhibitor, and no prior treatment with a similar drug to DATO-DXD. Now, you might be asking, what is DATO-DXD? Well, it is similar to sasituzumab, govotecan, and it's a TROP2-directed antibody drug conjugate with a anti-TROP2 antibody and a globule of chemotherapy that is delivered directly into the cancer cell. Does anyone call that globule, Michael? I feel it's a warhead, just globules. Most most people call it a warhead. I feel that's far too militaristic, so I call it a a globule. All right, globules it is. So many globules. How many globules does it deposit? I think it only deposits one globule per antibody. There we go. Interesting. Something to look up. (laughs) Something to Google. (laughs) So the study design, again, a relatively small study with 62 patients. And by the time of this analysis, 53% had discontinued treatment, the majority, as is so often the case, due to progressive disease. In terms of the demographics, the median age was 53 years old. And interestingly, the majority had low pdl one expression at 87%. In, in other phase three studies, the response rate for patients with a low PDL1 expression is about 45%, and that's sort of what you're expecting. 53% had had cytotoxic chemotherapy for early stage disease, and 60% had visceral metastases. Now, it's important to remember that this is a phase 1b slash 2 study, so there's no comparator arm, and we know that we're not going to expect significant overall survival data. However, the primary endpoint was overall response rate. And when you consider that we're aiming for about 45%, this drug seems to be giving us the goods. So the overall response rate is 79%. Of the 62 patients in the study, six of them had a complete response and 43 had a partial response via resist. So that's uh, either a complete resolution of radiological disease or at least a 30% reduction in the sum of diameters. The anti-tumor responses were observed regardless of pd one expression, which is interesting because in so many other tumor streams, we sort of think that pd one is reflective of the, expect- of the expected response rate. The median progression-free survival was 13.8 months, which is good, but not great. But again, we are talking about triple negative breast cancer here. The median duration of response was 15.5 months. And in terms of safety, 44% of patients had grade 3 to 4 treatment-related adverse events. 
16% had an adverse event that led to discontinuation, and there was one grade 5 adverse event. The most common AEs were stomatitis, which seemed to be quite a significant issue because it was both the most common AE overall and the most common AE of grade 3 or higher. Specifically, 11% of patients had grade 3 or higher stomatitis. Also of note, there were three ILD or pneumonitis events, which is something that you always want to keep uh, an eye on with these ADC plus immunotherapy combinations. So another early trial, another encouraging early trial, because it does seem to indicate that the combination of an ADC plus immunotherapy, which is, Josh, as far as I'm aware, not something that's really been tried, uh, not just in breast cancer, but uh, pretty much anywhere. It does show an encouraging durable response with that overall response rate of 79%. And it's important to note that this was an unselected population. So uh, they weren't selecting for pd one That's actually coming in a later trial. The toxicity profile, as is always the case with these studies, is considered tolerable, but the cutaneous or the, the degree of stomatitis is concerning. So ARM8 of this study is a pdl one high population for breast cancer, and it will be interesting to see if we do see a higher response rate. But Josh, you can probably expect to see datapotamab, deruxtecan, and devalimab in a later phase study in a hospital near you, because this is quite exciting for triple negative breast cancer. Devalimab never seems to die. It's always just there in the background. <laughs> Yeah, it's never achieved the heights of a pembrolizumab or a nivolumab, but it is. it has its own little niche. And it I think the, the drug company that makes it has put a lot of effort into carving out a little niche for it. And look, if it works, we'll take Amazing. it. Amazing, yeah. Oh, and one thing to say is that there is a current trial that I'm involved in called, the, I think it's the Astafania trial, and that's looking at a tezolizumab, one of the other niche immunotherapy agents with TDM1 in the triple in the sorry in the HER2 positive space with residual disease. So you never know this might be an avenue for chemotherapy to be shunted even further to the back particularly in cancers where it is still the standard of care with a combination of an antibody drug conjugate and immunotherapy. But the ironic thing is that ADCs are actually chemotherapy. It's directed chemotherapy. It's directed chemotherapy, but I think directed chemotherapy would be better than undirected chemotherapy any day of the week. That's exactly it. Well, I think that summarizes our tour de force and the creme de la creme of the hormone receptor positive, but predominantly HER2 positive metastatic space. Michael, any final words before we sign off to let our lovely listeners enjoy their day? Uh, other than what is coming next, Josh, because we're going to stay in the breast cancer space. We've covered metastatic disease, and next time we will be covering early breast cancer. Not quite as many uh, movers and shakers at ESMO this year, but there's still some exciting stuff, so we hope to see you then. There are still some candlestick makers, right? Anyway, <laughs> um, we will see you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.